Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Welcome to the Doing Time Show. I'm Peter. Um, I'll be with you for the next um, hour. Now, we're going to um, have some commentaries on Mamiya Abdul Abu Jamal. Mamiya is a revolutionary jur journalist. Mamiya has been writing since the age of 15. First as a minister of information for the Philadelphia Black Panthers in 19... 69 to 1971, then for a numerous Philadelphia radio and print venues, including National Public Radio. Mamiya served nearly 30 years on death row. Mamiya was confined for these years on Pennsylvania death row before federal courts ruled unconstitutional. The death row's sentence was he received at the age of 27 for the shooting of a Philadelphia police officer, Daniel Faulkner. Now he is serving a life, life without parole sentence in Pennsylvania general prison population. Mamiya is, a, is a, America's most internationally re renowned political prisoner. Mamiya Abdul Abu Jamal is a framed man. A charge of killing a police officer is the hardest rap to beat, even when innocent, especially for a revolutionary activist of colour. Nevertheless, the arguments for Mamiya's innocence are some of the strongest makeable. He was maintained... He has maintained his innocence from the beginning and to this day. Independent journalists researching his case have set forth cogent grounds that Mamiya was framed. For example, Amnesty International, an exclusive analyst of the case in 2000, called for a new trial, holding that the original trial was irritated Demly tainted by politics and race and failed to meet international fair trial standards. Even a lawyer writing for the mainstream media, American Lawyer magazine, who was too prone to call Mamiya guilty, nevertheless still summarised a length of evidence for police frame-ups, announcing, I'm joining to save Mamiya movement. 
Here and Now. And that was by um, Stuart Taylor, Jr., American lawyer in 1995. Any more information about Mamiya, go to www.bringmamiahome.com.au. So it's www.bringmamiahome.com.au. Van Dung. No parent ever mentioned Van Dung to me. No teacher ever mentioned Van Dung to me. No religious leader has ever mentioned Van Dung to me. No one has, unless one recalls the voice of Malcolm X, the black nationalist leader of the movement, 60s. Malcolm X, in his recorded speeches, speaks of how America's attack against black life and black rights led to a black revolution around the world. And I think to inspire black people and to convince them that they were not alone, Malcolm spoke of countries from Asia and Africa, newly independent countries, getting together to create a separate, non-aligned body to serve the needs of these newly emergent nations and their peoples and cultural, economic, and technical affairs. What a surprise to hear of Van Dung again over 50 years later. In 1956, the black American expatriate, Richard Wright, publishes The Color Curtain, a deep examination of the Asian-African conference in Van Dung. Indonesia. Here we see Wright's allegiance to psychiatry and psychology as a way into one's hidden drives and unspoken motivations. In this adoption of the science of the mind, Wright seemingly dumps political analysis for psychic or psychological analysis, or the outside for the inside. Instead of analyzing classes, right, looks to religion and race as keys to identity. And he saw the Bandung Conference as a convocation of the world's dispossessed peoples who turned from communism as well as capitalism to follow the road called non-alignment. When Wright first learned of the Bandung Conference, he was stunned by the sheer size of the populations to be represented there. China, India, Indonesia, Japan, Ethiopia, the Gold Coast, the Philippines, some 29 nations in all. He told his wife he had to go, and when she asked him why, he passed her the newspaper article. Upon reading it, she exclaimed, why, that's the human race. And so it was. But nations, are nations, and they rarely yield the iron chains of sovereignty. Van Dung, a dream, rarely reached its enormous potential. Can it do so now, in this new century, threatened by rapacious capitalism under the guise of neo-colonialism? The West wants to chain the world's majority to its systems of repression and restriction. Can the world the human race raise again the banner of self-determination, liberation, and freedom? Can Van Dung give rise to a new world power based 
on the overwhelming majority of the world's people? Can Africa and Asia emerge as whole societies again? This we shall find out. Whether the dream of Malcolm and our dream can become a reality. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. James Cohn, father of black liberation theology, 1939-2018. James Cohn was a small man, as in short in stature, but he was great in mind as a theologian and scholar. And after the emergence of the black freedom movement during the 1960s, he shocked the world with his seminal work, Black Theology, where he wrote, God is black. Professor Cohn wasn't the first to say that, for decades before he did so, scholar Arthur Huff Fawcett wrote, Black Gods of the Metropolis, published originally in 1944, detailing black religious movements in black ghettos in the North. Professor Cohn's work, enlightened by the black freedom movement, led him to write, God is black. There is no place in black theology for a colorless God in a society where human beings suffer precisely because of their color. The blackness of God means that God has made the oppressed condition God's own condition. James Howe Cohn, author of Black Theology of Liberation. Cohn's ideas came to fruition in black Christian nationalist communities across America who saw the divine at work in the black freedom movement. Cohn's brilliance was matched by his boldness, and his writing was both liberating and revelatory. In 1991, Cohn published Malcolm and Martin in America, which examined the ideas of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and their impacts on America. In writing of these two spiritual leaders and their respective ways of leadership, Cohn wrote, Anger and humor are like the left and right arm. They complement each other. Anger empowers the poor to declare their uncompromising opposition to oppression. And humor prevents them from being consumed by their fury. James Cohn, Malcolm and Martin in America. James H. Cohn, born in Fordyce, Arkansas, 1939, returns to his ancestors after a shimmering career as a black scholar. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Murder Incorporated. Dreaming of Empire, Book One, by Mumia Abu-Jamal and Stephen Vittoria. The colony he helped found, the colony he helped create, did not hesitate to execute Quakers or go medieval on those considered to be witches. Slavery was cool too, and according to the Puritan ethic of the time, slavery was condoned in the professed holy book and not perceived as a slight against God 
just a few extra hands around the house, you know? Sure, Africans were already enslaved in the neighborhood when Winthrop showed up, but he clearly supported the practice as governor, writing the very first law on the American continent, sanctioning the enslavement of Africans. In fact, Winthrop enjoyed wheeling and dealing in the slave trade, especially after the Pequot War, 1634-1638, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony, led by Winthrop, enslaved many of the captured Pequot Indians. But the captured warriors, who weren't taking this shit lying down, were still freaking out the good church folk. So Winthrop traded these insurgents for cotton and tobacco and Negroes. Now the Winthrops, who wanted to keep up with the Joneses, also needed some help around the house, so they kept three Pequot slaves for themselves. American exceptionalism and Christendom at its absolute best. Indeed, a shining city on the hill. Vacuum domicilium, or no man's land. Anders Stevenson, professor of history at Columbia University and the author of a remarkable discourse on the foundation of American empire entitled Manifest Destiny, American Expansion and the Empire of Right, makes a powerful case regarding the molten core of Europe's religious drive to conquer and colonize the Americas. For Europeans, land not occupied by recognized members of Christendom was theoretically land free to be taken. When practically possible, they did so. The Christian colonizers of the Americas, including the Spanish and the Portuguese, understood theirs as sacred enterprises. But only the New England Puritans conceived the territory itself as sacred. This, then, was the New Canaan, a land promised to be reconquered and reworked for the glory of God by his select forces, the saving remnant in the wilderness. Charged with the dominion of providence, the European settlers read occupiers, engaged in a practice known as vacuum domicilium, also known by another Latin term, terra nullius, which is derived from Roman law and translates to land belonging to no one or no man's land. Initially, many of the first colonists attempted to acquire the title to the land they occupied, but quickly abandoned that practice as it was considered an attempt to respect sovereignty and instead embrace the notion that law is politics by other means. Embarking on an all-out land grab via vacuum domicilium, if the property is not in active use, then it's simply free for the taking. So if the terrain was used seasonally by the indigenous population for farming, hunting, or fishing, and appears barren, too bad. The occupiers can simply claim the land. In fact, the colonizers made a straightforward, God-inspired rule. The rights of civilized Christians superseded the rights of the hunter-gatherers, heathens, and savages. The Protestant Reformation, Christianity's 16th century schism between the Roman Catholic Church and early Protestant reformers led by John Calvin and Martin Luther, laid the necessary foundation for biblical prophecy to be used as the spiritual motivation for the occupation of this new Israel, 
as well as the eventual removal of, as Jefferson and Franklin later defined them, savages. Stevenson suggests, the book of Revelation, in short, made sense to English Protestants in general and Puritans in particular. It allowed the Reformation to be interpreted as either a moment on the way to Armageddon or even as the battle itself. Surely, it could not have been an accident either that God had unveiled this new world, this new continent, hidden for so many ages, precisely at the moment when the process of purification had begun in the old world. And this process of purification was happening everywhere in the Americas. Stevenson continues, every activity, personal and communal, was irreducibly part of the holy war against Satan and his infidels. The aristocracy of saints had to work ceaselessly at this critical moment to make the present world as solemnly and gloriously Christian as it could be. The Puritans, true to their name, placed tremendous weight on always defining who was inside and who was outside when it came to their communal existence. The message to the heathens outside was, in this respect, as radical as St. Paul's, see the light or perish in eternal damnation. In the Virginia colony at the time, John Rolfe, when he wasn't busy cultivating and exploring tobacco and then marrying Pocahontas, Christianizing her, and changing her name to Rebecca, fortified the English occupiers of Virginia as a peculiar people, marked and chosen by the finger of God. From John Winthrop through Benjamin Franklin, almost 200 years later, American exceptionalism went viral, providing the necessary pretext and justification to exterminate the indigenous population at will until every last uncivilized, bestial, non-literate, undomesticated, feral, vicious, and barbarous savage was roadkill. First, let's hear from Winthrop regarding a smallpox epidemic that had wiped out the area's Indian population in the 1630s, something Winthrop viewed as divine intervention. God hath consumed the natives with a miraculous plague. Next, from the city of brotherly love, we hear from Ben Franklin regarding how rum was being utilized by God Almighty to help soften up the savages for the big kill. The appointed means by which the design of providence to extirpate those savages in order to make room for the cultivators of the earth. This escalating myth of being the chosen people, cultivators of a new promised land, a new Israel, became an integral premise in America's bloated self-interpretation. Samuel Langdon, colonial American clergyman and president of Harvard University from 1774 until 1780, was a typical cheerleader for American exceptionalism during the twilight years of the 18th century when he preached at Concord, New Hampshire. We cannot but acknowledge that God hath graciously patronized our cause and taken us under his special care as he did his ancient covenant people. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan 
of Prison Radio. You gotta remember, Nine Ops a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! Toward a new Jerusalem, America as the new Israel. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14, 16. When he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and to cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God, in all professors, for God's sake. John Withram, Governor, Massachusetts Bay Colony, City Upon a Hill, 1630. I have been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipments on the flagship Arbella 331 years ago, as they, too, faced the task of building a new government on a perilous frontier. We must always consider he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Today, the eyes of all people are truly upon us, and our governments, in every branch, at every level, national, state, and local, must be as a city upon a hill, constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. President-elect John F. Kennedy, 1961. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I've ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. President Ronald Reagan, 1989. Americans know that our future is brighter and better than these troubled times. 
We still believe in the hope, the promise, and the dream of America. We still believe in that shining city on the hill, presidential candidate Mitt Romney, 2012. Almost 400 years have passed since John Winthrop wrote the words, we shall be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us. Words that have come to define and bolster the myth known as American exceptionalism. And like any giant lie, this fiction is responsible for the massive bloodstains splattered across the canvas of American history. Centuries of Holocaust and enslavement, accompanied by centuries of the always in vogue reality of perpetual state-sanctioned terror, also known as the murder and mayhem of war. American leaders have been invoking this mythical city upon a hill since Winthrop paraphrased the Sermon on the Mount to justify the land grab about to take place with its subsequent atrocities heaved upon the Pequot and Narragansett Indians, brutal massacres often launched against non-combatants. Governor Winthrop even declared the colony a vacuum, concluding that the indigenous inhabitants had no legal right or standing to their land. It was as if the existing population simply did not exist, and soon that would be fact. Winthrop and all the latter-day propagandists envisioned America as Shangri-La, a mystical and harmonious place, almost supernatural, where liberty, justice, democracy, and peace, not to mention affordable electronics, were the guiding principles. Well. Like any good fairy tale, this American rhetoric sounds good, even sounds great, but has no basis in reality. There's no Easter Bunny, no Santa Claus, and there's definitely no utopian city upon a hill protected by a special sky god who represents American exceptionalism over all nations and cultures. Just like with James Hilton's novel, Lost Horizon, once you put down the fictitious and make-believe fable. There's no Shangri-La hidden at the western end of the Conlin Mountains. American mythology preaches that John Winthrop and his Puritan brothers left England in pursuit of religious tolerance and freedom. But in fact, Winthrop, the de facto father of American exceptionalism, was no proponent of religious tolerance or democracy in any way, shape, or form. If we should change from a mixed aristocracy to mere democracy, Winthrop wrote, we first should have no warrant in scripture for it, for there was no such government in Israel. A democracy is, among civil nations, accounted the meanest and worst of all forms of government. To allow it would be a manifest breach of the fifth commandment. You've been listening to an excerpt from Murder Incorporated by Mumia Abu-Jamal and Stephen Vittoria. This is Dreaming of Empire, book one. Murder, Inc., the latest work. When does a book come to life? When a writer writes it, or when a reader reads it? Thoughts such as these emerge as my latest work is released into a waiting world. Murder, Inc., Dreams of Empire, part one by yours truly, and Stephen Vittoria, published by Prison Radio. I said my, I should have said our, 
For this work is truly the work of two minds, two pair of eyes, two psyches with one central thesis, anti-imperialism against the empire. Vittoria is a filmmaker and a documentarian who worked for years to produce a film capturing the voices of some of America's finest thinkers, like the late, brilliant Gore Vidal and the equally compelling Dick Gregory. But the film project never gelled, and Stephen, never one to waste gems, reasoned that the words of such gifted thinkers might have a second life in print. When he suggested we join forces and write a book, I was initially hesitant, but this was something I'd never done before. My earlier book, A Classroom and a Cell, co-authored with scholar-activist Dr. Mark Lamont Hill, was really a conversation made by months of recordings between us, of literally thinking out loud. This would be work, hard work, of research, reading, thinking, interpreting, and then writing our findings into the world as history. Such a project is hard enough doing alone, but two guys separated by brick, steel, coast experiences? As risky as it was, it was a delicious challenge. Why not? Why not cast caution to the winds and, as a sneakers company put it in their ads, just do it? We split the work 50-50 and went to work. We read many of the same texts and either called or wrote one another. We resolved not to cut corners, but also not to cut harsh, unyielding truths. In the center of our work stood the presence of Zen, whose The People's History of the United States informed and influenced our work. We envisioned not the U.S., but the world itself, more the empire. Why not? Murder, Inc., the definitive history of the U.S. empire, was born. We have just begun but there is more to come hot on the trail of this one. I, I mean, we think Howard Zinn would be proud. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. Hello, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal, and I'm here to introduce you to Murder Incorporated, a new book on anti-imperial history written by Mumia Abu-Jamal and Stephen Vittoria. Murder Incorporated, this is volume one. And from chapter six, I'm reading from the chapter called The American Revolution, Who Won, Who Lost. Americans of every stripe and fashion were always a pretty radical bunch. When you really consider it, only a radical bunch of folks could even think that the widely accepted idea, the divine right of kings, was bogus. Indeed, the poor and working people of the country, before there was a United States of America, were far more radical than those we today hail as revolutionaries and founding fathers. They were radical because they had to be. They were oppressed by an obscenely rich oligarchy which thought of them as the unthinking multitude and the dregs of society. Those were the thoughts of the patriots too, wealthy men like Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Robert Morris, and Alexander Hamilton.
Adams, too, looked down upon women, even if he looked up to his Abigail. But more importantly, he had personal thoughts of the revolution that no schoolchild in America has ever heard. Adams said, The history of our revolution will be one continued lie from one end to the other. That's John Adams. For it was not a revolution in support of freedom. Not for those most in need of freedom, captives seized in Africa. It was not a revolution to give liberty to the millions of masses who had no wealth. It took hundreds of years before they could even vote. It was not a revolution for nearly half of the country, women. Only in the first quarter of the 20th century could one seriously discuss their right to vote. It was not a revolution to do anything for Indians, except exterminate them. It was not a revolution for those immigrants who swarmed this land to escape the class and religious wars that raged against them. Indeed, it wasn't really a revolution at all. It was a baron's revolt, a change of management from the British lords and ladies of empire. It was a fight among who would rule this land, who would be master, George III or George Washington? Who would profit? This is Mumia Abu-Jamal for Murder Incorporated, Part 1, Dreaming of Empire. Written by Mumia Abu-Jamal and Stephen Vittoria. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Hello, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal, and I'm giving you an excerpt from the new book, Murder Incorporated, written by myself and my co-author, Stephen Vittoria. From Chapter 4, The Murderers of the World Arrive in the Americas. When the smoke cleared, over two-thirds of the dead were Lakota women and children. Wounded knee would mark the bookend of the last chapter of the so-called Indian Wars. It would be the harbinger of a century of such bloodletting that the world would regard it as an era of nightmare. But long before Verdun, before Dachau, Treblinka, Manchuria, Nagasaki, or Hiroshima, there were massacres like Wounded Knee for five centuries, blessed by priests and promoted by politicians. The tormentors, genocideers, rapists, and torturers were Spanish, English, Portuguese, and Danish. They were Europeans sent by a crucified Jew to vanquish paradise and bring hell to this green earth. They purified this new space with fire, blood, dung, and bones, and called it holy before the Lord. Of the people they met, who once radiated such beauty and health, like demigods in a terrestrial heaven, they left a bare remnant, less than one half of one percent. Their job done, they celebrated the death of an estimated 100 million people by pronouncing them savages and praising Christopher Columbus, the discoverer. An indigenous writer from the Maya would preserve the following words into the text Chilambalam regarding the white lords who invaded Mayan life. He wrote, They taught fear, and they withered the flowers. 
so that their flower should live. They maimed and destroyed the flowers of others, marauders by day, offenders by night, murderers of the world. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, gray, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Winnie Medicizela Mandela, 1936-2018. She was born in 1936 and named Namzamo Winifred Matikizela, but the world would come to know this South African beauty as Winnie Mandela, the wife of African National Congress leader Nelson Mandela. Their lives, their struggles for freedom, dignity, and liberation from the racist ignominy known as apartheid filled most of the 20th century. He, Nelson, labored under the eye of the harsh apartheid sun, breaking rocks in the prison yard, while she, Winnie, labored under the white state's total surveillance while she raised their children. While not widely known, her suffering included not only separation from her husband, but the cruel legality called banning, a South African censorship that outlawed her speech, not allowing her to quote her husband's words. Winnie, a lifelong rebel ignored such law and proudly quoted Nelson and she suffered her own imprisonment as well. She was banished to Blomfontein, a white Afrikaner district, where the only blacks she saw were servants or cooks for white families. She continued to resist the racist government. The ANC was banned and she wore the ANC colors as a headdress. And when, after Nelson's freedom, the marriage ended, she remained a powerful presence in South African life, loved by the nation's poor and dispossessed. For they knew, in their heart of hearts, that their struggle was her struggle. In her 1984 book, Part of My Soul Went With It, Winnie Mandela wrote, I have ceased a long time ago to exist as an individual. The ideals, the political goals that I stand for, those are the ideals and goals of the people in this country. They cannot just forget their own ideals. My private self doesn't exist. Whatever they do to me, they do to the people of this country. Several years ago, when Nelson was being laid to rest, his third wife, Grasa Michelle Mandela, stumped in grief was given a hug and a kiss to console her. 
by his second wife, Winnie. Namzamo Winnie Mandela Madikizela, a class act to the very end, and a lifelong revolutionary. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Billabong Bait starting on the 8th of May at 11am till 12pm, 8.55am, 3CR Community Radio. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. centuries, black captives in America's slave quarters used Bible stories to support their long struggle for freedom. In the long, dark night of bondage, people turned Bible stories into freedom songs, which were later called Negro spirituals, such as this example. Joshua fit the bottle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua, the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. For African captives, largely illiterate, this song was a powerful prayer for black liberation that echoed down the corridors of history. In the mid-20th century, as young black folks joined the black liberation, the name Jericho retained its aura of freedom. For 20 years now, Jericho, once led by the remarkable revolutionary Sufu Kari, has been fighting for the freedom of black revolutionaries, veterans of the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, and other revolutionary formations. Bukhari, herself a veteran leader in the Black Panther Party, a combatant in the Black Liberation Army, and a vice president in the Republic of Africa, fought long and hard for freedom, political prisoners, and prisoners of war. It was said that she did the work of ten people, and for those who knew Safia, surely this was an understatement. Safia 
remembered and loved for her courage, hard work, and dedication to black freedom. It's no more, but Jericho is still with us. And Jericho, the movement, is doing today what black captives have done for centuries, fight for freedom. The voices of chained African captives echo throughout time in sweet, tragic song, longing for freedom still. Joshua, the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. From Impersonation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And you're with FreeCR's Doing Time Show. Um, thanks for listening. Um, we'll see you all next week. Um, have a good week.